If you have not done so already, I want to encourage you to turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 2, we're going to read the first 11 verses this morning. This is, in a sense, uh, the Gospel of John turning the page, if you will, bringing us into a, a new section. Uh, we uh, Commentators will label this section uh, the Book of Signs up through chapter 11. They call this, these chapters the Book of Signs because Jesus is, is doing these signs. Um, for whatever reason, the Gospel of John doesn't use the word miracles, which is kind of what we're going to see in a moment. This is the, the miracle or the sign of turning water into wine. John doesn't use the word miracle, but he uses the word sign, which I think is helpful for us if we think of the, the signs that Jesus is doing as signposts to who Christ is. Uh, they give us information, they give us clarity, they give us understanding, they give us direction and understanding who Christ is, understanding his ministry, his goals, his work, his, his person, and, and, and all the things about him, these, these signposts, if you will, and we're going to see one of those this morning, Jesus turning water into wine. And I think what's maybe kind of interesting about this, you remember the beginning of the Gospel of John is that, that prologue, the first 18 verses in chapter 1, and, and John paints this big picture of, of who Christ is, talking uh, in, in grand language about the identity of Christ. This is who he is, the, the Word, how he's always existent and preexistent and all these things. And he uses one phrase to describe Christ, that he is full of grace and truth, that our Savior, our Messiah, is, is full of grace and truth. And it's interesting, when we get to chapter 2, we see both of those elements in chapter 2. We're going to see the grace this morning, turning water into wine, puts the, the grace of Christ on display. The end of chapter 2, when we get there, we'll see the truth of Christ when he's in the temple and he is uh, causing uh, a disturbance, you might say. He's, he's bringing and he's illustrating his truth. We serve a Savior who's full of grace and truth. And this passage here is pointing distinctly to uh, Christ's grace. And I think you'll, you'll see more of that as we dive into it. But for now, as you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, and each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the, the, the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for 
this miracle, for this sign. And we pray that you would help us to understand it. Pray that you would help us to uh, make sense of it in our own lives, and our own situations. And for us as your church, all for your glory, in Christ's name, amen. Would you please be seated? I've probably told this story before, and I may get in trouble later on. But it's the story of uh, when my wife had a first blind date experience. Uh, It was in the 80s, and so a little bit of the 80s will come out here in a moment. Uh, She was uh, picked up by her date. It was a double date. And uh, she's looking out the window, and she sees her date approaching, and he's wearing uh, a a tank top that says Gold's Gym on it and cut-off jeans, okay? I told you it was the 80s, okay? But even still, it's the 80s, but, you know, not the best first date impression. She's like, all right. They get in the car, and they've got to go pick up the other uh, girl. It's a double date, so they've got to pick up the fourth. They go across town, and then they've got to drive uh, the other way, uh, back across town to go out to eat. And they've got to drive a little bit of distance uh, to get to Chattanooga, where the movie theater is, which is where they're going to go later on. But they go to their, their restaurant to eat together. Two couples, date night. They go to Western Sizzlin', okay? It's a cafeteria style, so you can imagine the date scenario. The first date, let's get our cafeteria trays like we're in high school. If you had those in high school, and we'll walk through line, and we'll get our little red cups and sit down and eat together. Again, not the first impression, but, you know, it's high school. What do you do? But the kicker came when they went to see a movie. You would think maybe romantic comedy, maybe just kind of a good action movie, something that's kind of lighthearted and kind of fun. They go to see Hellraiser, which is this horror movie. If you know my wife, she cannot stand horror movies, and uh, this is like the worst situation ever. Like, you know, what, we're, why are we here? And so she endures this movie somehow, and she get back in the car, and they're going to head on home. It's kind of a long drive home, and she's just leaning on the car door. It's, it's kind of hot out, so they got the windows down, and and just, she just wants to get home. She just, I just want this thing over with. This is just miserable. This is never going to happen again. You know, every time I see Gold's Gym, I'm going to have these nightmares, okay? So they get home, and they're pulling in her neighborhood. They're driving around, and there's this dog that's kind of crossing the street, you know, upper front, either crossing or just kind of standing there like, like they do sometimes. And you would think, you know, maybe honk your horn, maybe slow down. This guy makes a direct line for this dog, Okay. And at this point, my wife will say, this is her quote, I heard a splat, okay? And they pull into the driveway, date's over. First impressions are a big deal, okay? And this was her first impression, and it totally turned her off uh, to this experience and and to this guy, uh, I trust, even until this day. Jesus, in his ministry, this is him setting, this, this is his first impression, in a sense. Uh, it's, it's when he's really being public. He's, we saw him last week gather some disciples to start to follow him and, and making these calls and dealing with the, the Nathaniel, the skeptic. But now things are much more public, and this is certainly the first sign, and that's meant to be more public. And it's the, the impression that Jesus wants to give to his followers. It's certainly the, the story, if you will, that, that the Gospel of John shares with us off the bat. It's, it's the first big thing that we see about Christ and he's doing. Now, and, now, as a side note, if you are writing a Gospel, okay, 
It, would you include this story? Would this be your lead story, so to speak? Let me lead into the, the ministry, the public ministry of Christ with a story about Jesus turning water into wine. I suspect you, you might not because there's so many other good stories that you could start with. And I think the fact that, that, Jesus, that John does start with uh, this story of Jesus turning water into wine, maybe not the first go-to story that we would run to, that I think it adds to and it gives us confidence that this is God's word, that, that this is the scriptures that, that God wants us to have because maybe common sense says you wouldn't start with this, but because it was started with this, I think it gives us some confidence in it. But nevertheless, what do we learn from this passage? There's two main characters that I want us to highlight. You, you've got Mary and you've got Jesus, and each one of them has something for us to learn and to understand about how we relate to God. And that's our outline. What do we learn from Mary? What do we learn from Jesus? So first, what do we learn from Mary? A little background here. Let's, let's go back to the story there. Jesus and the disciples are at this, this wedding feast, this wedding party, if you will. Uh, it, maybe it's some kind of family connection of, of Jesus's, but it's a, it's a big gathering. Now, when you hear wedding don't think, you know, Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon, a couple hours uh, at a church and then a reception afterwards. Uh, don't hear it like that. Hear big party. Hear a big blowout. Like this could last as long as a week, a week of, of dancing, a week of, of being together, a week of laughing, a, a week of eating, a week of, of drinking and, and having this wine that's certainly present there. It's, it's a big deal. And, of course, we realize off the bat that the wine has run out, that it's, that it's empty. It's gone. Now, you think hey, that's not that big a deal. I mean, it's just wine. What's the big deal? It is a big deal. Uh, in this culture, for, if, the, if, the, if the groom fails to provide like this, it could be kind of shameful for him. It could be really shameful for him. Imagine you're, you know, you're at a, a restaurant, and it's a, it's a big family affair, and it's a huge table. You, you're secluded in the, in the back room even. Your, your, your party is so big. It's friends, it's family. It's, you're eating, you're, you're laughing, you're telling stories, you're having a great time together. And the evening's winding down and the waiter comes back to you and he says, I'm sorry, sir, but your credit card was rejected. Okay, you, you, you know how that would feel awful. And if you're, in that, if you're seeing that happen, you feel, a little, you feel bad for him, you feel a little shame. Uh, in light of, of that. That's the sense of which the, the, the wine running out, uh, how big a deal it is. And so enter Mary. Mary comes, she grabs Jesus for whatever reason, uh, probably because you know, she's spent a lifetime with Jesus and she knows about him and how resourceful he is. And she's mindful too that you know, the wine's run out and I really don't want to see this family embarrassed. I don't want to see turn ugly for them. And so Jesus maybe. You know, maybe this would be a good time for you to, to exercise some of that resourcefulness that I've, I've seen uh, growing up with you and, and raising you. Maybe you could do something here to help solve this problem, perhaps. And then you get to uh, verse 5, and you hear, uh, G- excuse me, verse 4, and you see Jesus' response. It's kind of, I don't know how you receive it. It's kind of mysterious to me. It's kind of uh, different. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Let's un- unpack that a little bit because it is kind of, kind of an, maybe an odd response, uh, if you will. It seems like he's answering something that his mother is not necessarily asking of him. Uh, you may be noticed or be put off a little bit. He's, he calls her woman. Like, 
this is your mother. Why do, why do you call her woman? And it sounds disrespectful for us, but if, if you look in the Greek and the commentators will say it's, it's, not, it's not meant to be rude. It's not meant to be disrespectful. It's used in the end of the Gospel of John where Jesus is on the cross and he's very lovingly, very tenderly uh, communicating to his, his mom. He uses the, the word woman with her there. Uh, saying, you know, John, he's going to take care of you. I want, I want you to, to come under his care. He's going to look after you. He's going to help you. I'm, I'm thinking about you in, in this moment. And so it's not meant to be rude. Um, commentators will say, you know, it's probably akin to, it's close to what we say in the South as ma'am. You know, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Um, I'll be right there, ma'am. It, it's kind of something similar to that when Jesus addresses her as woman. And then he says, why do you involve me? Which is, it's, it's like, and it seems like Jesus is saying, the best thing I can come up with here is that he's saying, don't tell me how to do my ministry. It, don't tell me how to, to do these things. I take my cues from the Father. I do things to, to please him, and I'm going to follow him and, and, and do those things. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. By hour, he means what? He means Easter. He means the cross. He means that the, the, the passion week. He means being handed over, arrested, uh, hung on a cross at that hour, that time. That's what he responds to. That's what he says to Mary in this moment. It's like he's got this, this thousand-mile stare that he's looking into the future, and he's thinking about that hour. I, I've heard it explained like this. It says, imagine if you're single and you're at a wedding, Okay. Whether you're in the wedding, you're, you're a guest at the wedding, you're at this wedding, and you are, begin to think about your own wedding, your own hopes and desires for a wedding, to be uh, the, the center of, of such an affair like this, and you think, this is what I would do, this is what I want, I can't you think about how exciting that is and anticipate that. It's a little bit of what Jesus is, is, is doing here. There's something he's anticipating about his future as he's at this wedding. And we're helped as we think about the Old Testament a little bit like this and how a relationship with God is, it can be is described, some the categories that are used to describe how God's people relate to God. You know, there's the category of God is our king and we're his subjects or we're his servants, okay? Other times it's talked about as God is our shepherd and we're his sheep. We follow him and, and he knows us and so on and so forth. Other times, and sometimes, it's, the, it's using the categories of a bridegroom and a bride. You know, that Christ is the bridegroom, and we're, us as the church, we're that bride belonging to him, being called into this, this exclusive relationship, if you will. There's this incident in the Gospel of Matthew where these religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, what's the problem with your disciples? You know, why don't they fast? That's what religious people do. That's what spiritually minded people do. They have this practice and habit of fasting. Your disciples don't do that. And Jesus basically turns to them and said, you know, if there's a wedding party going on and they're with the, the, the bride, do, they, do, do people fast at that time? It's a time of celebration. It's a time of, it's a, it's a different feel to it. And Jesus is using those categories of, of a bride and a bridegroom. And so that's why I say when Jesus says my hour has not yet come, perhaps it's in this wedding environment that Jesus is thinking about the grand celebration that his cross, his hour is driving everything towards. And then you get Mary's response. All this leads to Mary's response in verse 5. She says, do whatever he tells you. Mary turning to the servants, turning to those who are doing the practical stuff, just do whatever he tells you. 
And you think about that a little bit, how, what great instruction that is for us. That Mary perhaps feeling a little rebuffed or a little pushed back on and, and a little maybe caught off guard by how Jesus responds to her about this last hour and being called woman and, and all these kinds of things. Nevertheless, she says, do what he tells you. Which Mary doesn't have a lot of dialogue in the Gospels. We don't see her saying a lot. There's a, there's a lot we get when she uh, finds out that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. But we don't get a lot. But her instruction for us here is so helpful for us. Do whatever he says. Mary knows that there is a need. There's a situation where something is missing. In this case, it's, it's wine for this party. It's a, the shame and the embarrassment that this, these people are going to feel. And nevertheless, she says, do what he tells you. And I think that the takeaway for us is to be reminded and to be encouraged when we hit spots in our life where something is missing, to go to him and know that he wants to fix it, that he's able to fix it, he's able to deal with it, he's able to respond to all the things that we are going through. Again, it may not sound like a big deal that the wine is missing, but it could be really weighty and very embarrassing. And Jesus wants to meet that need as we're going to see here in a moment. What is missing in your life? What is lacking in your life where you need to hear of Mary's words to just to do whatever he says? Is there something missing in your marriage? Just this struggle that's there that this one issue you just can't work out. Is there something missing in your, in your work life? Is there tension in some relationship or that the finances are not measuring up? Is there something missing there? Is there something missing in your kids? There's some kind of concern that you have for them. There's just something missing. Is there something missing in your health? That you're struggling with this all the time. There's no resolution to it. You're struggling. There's something missing in your spiritual life. What is it that you think is missing? And where do you need to go to Jesus? Asking him to work on this, to fix it, to, to, to provide what is missing for you. Because nowhere in the Bible does God say to us, you can come to me after you've got your life together, after your marriage is cleaned up, after your work life, if you've got better ethics, after you've got your spiritual life in order, then you can come to me. God thrives in those situations where we can come to him and bring those things that are missing, those things are lacking, and allow him to work, allow him to answer, allow him to, to guide and to direct us and encourage and strengthen us. Where do you need to hear Mary's words that say to us, do whatever he asks? Second thing is, what do we learn from Jesus? And this is where verses 6 through 10 become so pivotal for us. We read there, six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. As a side note, I think those, those mentioning specifically those, those jars of purification, certainly the, it helps us understand what kind of jars that are there. But maybe as a side note too, it reminds us of where the ministry of Jesus is ultimately going. He's going to take us to a place where we don't have to rely on those kind of ceremonial things to be right with God and to come into his presence. And Jews would take water from those, those big jars and they would clean themselves because of this, all this moral impurity before they go into the temple, before they're in, exposed to the special presence of God there in the temple, they would clean themselves so that they could be right with him. And there's going to be a day when Jesus' ministry where he says to us, 
Those things aren't necessary. My cross is all you need. My life for you is all that you need. But we have this miracle, this sign, if you will, that Jesus takes these six stone water jars that are able to hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. Okay, think about that. 20 to 30 gallons of water, the text tells us, that could be up to 150 gallons of water. Okay, 150 gallons of water. Think 300 two liters, okay? Think 300 two liters Jesus takes and makes water into wine. That's a lot of wine. It's not the cheap stuff. It's, it's the good stuff that Jesus performs this miracle. And the question for us is, why does Jesus do this? Certainly we can ask because he's, you know, he's trying to help out the wedding party and he's trying to save this embarrassment. But this is a lot of wine from this water. And I think it helps us understand that Jesus in his ministry is bringing joy. He's bringing celebration, that he is the party. This kind of joy represented in this wine. Yes, Jesus comes to suffer. We're going to see that. We're going to see how he's misunderstood and and treated harshly, and, and people don't get him, and he's going to die an ugly death on the cross. And if you follow him and you trust him as your Savior and as your Lord, that you're, there's going to be suffering involved in that call as well and being identified with him as a believer. But at the same time, to belong to him means to know joy, it's to know happiness, to know contentment, to know rest, to know a sense of celebration. Certainly we get pockets of that joy now, but that's ultimate celebration, this ultimate joy that he's going to bring us. In Isaiah 25, it's expressed like this. It says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Who is Jesus to you? How do you think of him? Do you think of him as good Do you think of him as as wanting your joy? Do you think of him as joyful? Do you think of him wanting your good? Or do you see him as somebody, I just go to God when I have a problem in my life, something wrong with my marriage or something going on at work, or I need some some particular guidance or I need some particular direction. If I want joy, if I want happiness, I watch a football game. Or I go do my hobby. That's where I find joy and happiness. God, he does different things in my life. Do you see God as actually good in your life? And this can be so dangerous for us because we look at other people's lives and we start to compare ourselves and think they've got a perfect family, they've got a perfect job, they've got all this stuff working out for them and you feel like you just you can't have that, you can't partake of that. It's that God doesn't want those things for you. He just wants to keep you feeling bad all the time. A number of years ago, we took our kids to a, a science museum. It was, it was a holiday break and we were just wanted to get out of the house and, and do something because they were getting really fidgety and it was getting real ugly. We go to this science museum. We got there early enough where there was a big line. A lot of pa- families were, wanted something to do with their kids too. We waited in the line, waiting in the line. The kids are very excited. You know, we got one, he wants to see the trains. He can't wait to see that. We got one that sh- they just want to climb and, and, and touch things and discover all kinds of stuff that's going on in there. Very excited. We get inside, we, we, we get our tickets and you're in this big kind of opening hallway and you can see all the other stuff that you're about to walk in into. You know, stuff to climb, stuff to, to learn about, stuff to, all these kind of stuff to play with. And they're just, they're chomping in the bit to, to get in there. Now, what if I pulled them aside, pulled them over to found a quiet spot, and I looked them both in the eyes. I said, pay attention to what I'm going to say. You see what's out there? You can't have that. 
you, you can't go in there. You can't participate in that. You can't do any of that. That's, that's not for you. We're only here to look at it. That's for other people. Okay, no parent would do that, okay? No normal parent would do that. That's, that's not what you expect. You, you want them to go and enjoy and, 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 and have fun and do that. I, I bring that up because sometimes we, we think about God in our lives that he's just telling us no. We look around and see all the good stuff that everybody has, all the good circumstances, all the blessings, the perfect kids and the great job and the great looks and the great health. And we think God does not want that for us, that he's holding back on us. I'm not saying he's going to give you the life of your dreams. What I am saying is that God is good. He has your joy in mind. He wants you to know peace and happiness. He's, he's not some big meanie in the sky that wants to, to say no, 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 and just bring you suffering and, and misery all the time. God turning water into wine it's a God of celebration. He's a God of joy. How do you see him? How do you think about him? Do you think about him as good in your life? I started this uh, passage talking about my wife's date, and you're probably thinking, well, what happened to the dog? Okay? It sounds kind of ominous. Okay? When you hear a splat, that doesn't sound good. Pulled into the driveway, and she just bolted out. I don't even know if she said goodbye, but she was out of there. She goes inside, and she tells her mom, this is like, you know, our neighbor's dog got hit. And so her mom, very discreetly, uh, I could just see her doing this, calls the neighbor and says, you know, I think I heard somebody say that, you know, the dog got hurt or something. The dog survived, okay? The dog lived. I don't know if he's still alive now. But what made that, 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 that date so horrible and that first impression so horrible for her is because her date did not know her. Her date didn't know what she liked, what she wanted to do, what would make her happy. It didn't know anything about her. When we see this first miracle of Jesus, this first sign that points us to this is who Christ is, this is a little bit about who he is, it's meant to show us that he knows us. He knows that we, we, we need to find joy, that we need to find him filling in what's missing in our lives. Are you willing to trust him? Are you willing to trust him and see him as good? Are you willing to to do whatever he asks? Because he's a God that wants to bring celebration. He's a God that turns water into wine. Would you pray with me? Father God, we need your grace. We need your sufficiency. We pray, know that we have things missing in our lives, gaps that we feel, frustrations, disappointments, missed expectations, uh, regrets. But we know that you're a God that's good. We know that you're a God that's able. That you're a God that's able to take our brokenness. You're able to take our guilt. You're able to take our shame. And you're able to work it for your glory and our good. And you give us the faith to trust you and to know that you are that good. In Christ's name we ask, amen.